The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It can be found on page 846 on the Black Pew Bible. Please stand with me as I read God's word. John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of God. Uh, So just as Brian just said, uh, I was going to give a couple uh, bit more pieces of information here about that one uh, announcement you just heard coming up on uh, Sunday, August 27th and uh, Sunday of uh, September the 10th. So if you remember, we've been talking about what does it look like to uh, be men, be women, to be a church who go out into our communities, local, like where we actually live, neighborhood communities, but also to recognize that our, uh, our church family is planted in a neighborhood. And so we began to go um, and consider what does it look like, recognizing that a lot of times when the Bible talks about the call that we have on our lives as followers of Jesus, Jesus would couch this going out and witnessing and being a witness for him um, in very uh, agricultural kind of language. We're going out into the harvest. We're going to sow gospel seeds. And so we started training for that and talking about that. Several of you have gone through the No Place Left training, and we've been talking about why it's so crucial that we depend upon the Lord God in prayer for this. We need him, as it were, to go ahead of us and to plow up the soil, to break up the soil And one of the ways I think the Bible talks about this is by being dependent in prayer. So the hope is that a week from today, 
um, that for everyone who can, what we'll do is when the service ends, um, we will break uh, that. When the service ends, you guys will come up to the front if you can do this. And what we're going to do is we're going to go basically blitz our neighborhood, giving ourselves to the work of plowing up the soil of people's hearts in prayer. And we're just going to divide up and have teams go out in our neighborhood and we're just going to give ourselves over to prayer. We're just as a church family, Lord willing, um, all y'all, this is everyone's invited, is we're going to go do that. Because two weeks from that day, September the 10th, for those of us who've gone through the No Place Left training, and even if you haven't gone through that training, we're going to begin the faithful work of doing just what we've been talking about. We're going to start um, the long-term uh, pastoring our parish, so to speak, by caring for people through prayer with the hope and the aim of being sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that when opportunities come to be able to share the gospel, we can just sow the seeds of the gospel generously into the hearts and the minds of people. So it's getting real, right? A lot of people can talk, very few do action, and that's the cool part about verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you talk about them a lot. No. Or just are very glad that you had a thought about it. No. Blessed are you if you do them. And so we're going to start doing, and we're going to start doing on September the 10th. And before we can start doing, um, we want to continue to lay the groundwork in prayer. And so you will hear more from me. Um, I'm going to uh, keep pumping out some more information and encouragement on Slack this coming week. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But next Sunday, I highly encourage you to clear up your calendar for like 30 minutes after service max to be able to, after service, I hope is to gather down here in the front. We're going to pray over um, uh, those who can go, and then we're going to go walk out the door, and we're going to go into the neighborhood, and we're going to plow some soil in prayer. Does that make sense? Okay, so look at your calendars, and if you can, and if you can make it, I highly encourage you to do so, okay? So sermon title this morning is this, I am a servant. I am a servant. I'll say more about this here in a minute, but the main idea comes down to this, that a servant has been created, saved, and called to serve, and their service is all about the gospel. So for someone who has been born again, who's been adopted into the family of God, these everyday disciple gospel-shaped identities that we've been talking about, one of those gospel-shaped identities is the servant identity. And so what this means is that God has created us when we've been saved. We are now called to go and serve. But this isn't just service for service sake. This is service serving one another, as you're going to hear this morning, ultimately as we have been served by Christ through his work on the cross and that service then to one another is meant to mirror something, say something. It has a message, and it's this idea of the gospel, right? We're serving one another in Christ-like ways as we've been served by Christ so people can see and know who? Know Jesus through the way that we are serving. So I'm going to pray for us. My encouragement is for you to do the same. I'm going to pause here for a couple of seconds on the front end to give you the opportunity to do that. Um, to ask the Lord to speak. I'm going to be saying words. and You know as well as I do, a church service is a perfect time for us to slip into the Charlie Brown teacher mode. You know what I'm talking about? Remember when Charlie Brown's teacher talked in all the Charlie Brown shows? How did the Charlie Brown's teacher talk? There was never any words. It was just 
But we don't want to approach God's Word in that way. We have to hear from Him clearly. We must hear from Him clearly. And the good news is the power of the Holy Spirit can turn the want, want, was into I heard from the living God today. The preaching of the Word empowered by the Spirit. So we're going to pause. We're going to, I'm, I'm encouraging you to just pray in similar ways along those lines. Lord, will you work and help me to hear from your Word clearly today? And then I will pray for us and we'll dive into the text, okay? So my encouragement is right now, on behalf of your own heart, soul, mind, go to the Lord in prayer asking to hear from the Word, the Word clearly today. Lord, we often talk about a common prayer here amongst this Jesus family, and it's just that four-letter word prayer, just help. That's a legitimate prayer. (laughs) I pray a lot of those prayers, and I'm assuming my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ do, and right now it's just an appropriate time to pray that prayer. Help. Would you help us to hear clearly? Would you help us to lean in to what the Scripture is saying? Holy Spirit, would you help us to have eyes to see our need for Jesus? Would you help us to have ears to hear, tune our hearts to receive the grace and mercy that are found in Jesus in this text this morning. Help, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us. Help me. Assist me to proclaim the excellencies of the living God this morning through this text in John 13. Help. We're not fools. We're not independent creatures. We are dependent upon you. Please help. We're asking for this so that King Jesus might receive the glory and be worshipped as we continue to give ourselves in worship to the preaching of the word. It's in your name, King Jesus. I pray this for myself and for this Jesus family. Amen. Remember, we're in a five-week sermon series before we anchor and settle back into preaching through the gospel of Luke. Remember this, that we've said that as disciples, our discipleship of Jesus is an everyday thing, but we also recognize that while we might say, I am an everyday disciple, for many of us, we struggle to know what the everydayness of our discipleship looks like. said last week, the old adage, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every single time, and for most of us, it's It's not that we see little to no maturing or we struggle to see maturing in our everydayness because we just are sort of ambivalent and apathetic and we just don't care. Like that's probably not not many of us. For most of us, we're like, I do care. Like I do want to grow. And so if you just start to peel back the layers of like why do we struggle to grow, for many of us that struggle can just come down to this. Like I just don't know what the Bible says the bullseye is supposed to look like. Right, So we just sort of get up and we're like, I want to grow, and it's just sort of like a grow thrown into the air and we're just not quite sure 
what that should look like. And so the aim of this little five-part sermon series is to say, um, praise be to God that he hasn't just said, slapped us on the back and said, you're a follower of Jesus now? I sure hope you figure it out. But from the word of God, the Father has loved us immensely by giving us bullseyes, gospel-shaped identities that we can sort of pull back the arrow of our lives and shoot at anchored in the word because it's God the Father saying this is what it means for you, for you, for you, for me to look like, not for two hours on a Sunday morning, but for two hours on a Sunday morning and the other six days and 22 hours in between. The 24-7 everydayness of our discipleship. If you remember, we talked about the gospel-shaped identity of worshiper, that was week one. Last week, week two, we recognized that as a result of saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are now in a Jesus family, part of a global Jesus family, and that has implications for our local Jesus family, this church family that's called Delta Church. And this morning, what we're going to do is turn to a third biblically informed, gospel-shaped identity of an everyday disciple, and it's just that of a servant. I am a servant if I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So according to God's words, according to God's word, if you want to take these first three identities and stitch them together, it's this. True worshipers in God's family are servants. Because my false worship has been turned into true worship as a result of repentance, sin, faith in Jesus Christ, I am now adopted as a son or daughter into the family of God. My familial identity means something for me in everyday life. And it's this, that I am a servant. And as we've seen, and we're going to tease out, a servant has been created, saved, called to serve, and this service is all about the gospel in the sense that when we go serving others like Jesus in the way that we have been served by Jesus on the cross, people can actually see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in action and in words. But as we know all too well, while this is true, this idea of being created, saved, called to serve, service being all about the gospel, that this heart disposition of servanthood, it just doesn't come natural to us. We don't come out of the womb, as it were, with hearts bent and ready to serve others like Jesus what you see in Scripture is that outside of faith in Christ, the natural tendency of the human heart is actually quite the opposite, isn't it? It's to jockey for position. We come out of the womb believing the lie that it's better to be served than to serve. We come out believing it's better to receive than to give. We believe it's better to be great rather than to be lowly. In big and obvious ways in our lives and in small, hidden ways that we just don't quite fully understand, we have the attitude outside of Christ, and even Christians can struggle with this in Christ, is that we demand platforms, we clamor to be the one in leadership, we thirst for applause, we hunger for recognition, we want people to 
pat our backs and to give us approval, and we go and we go and we run and we run happy all the time to manipulate others because we truly believe the question, who is the greatest, deserves one answer. Me. I'm the greatest. And of course, this attitude, as I just alluded to, it's not limited to the unbelieving world. Followers of Jesus, fellow adoptees in the Jesus family, when walking by the flesh and not walking by the Spirit, we can struggle with this whole servanthood-like Jesus call that's been placed upon our lives. And so when we turn to God's Word, we witness this struggle in various places, but where it's found oftentimes in the Gospels for sure is the struggle that you see among the disciples of Jesus as they get into bickering arguments between one another about who is the greatest. So they're walking down the road, they're pursuing one another or they're walking with one another, they're pursuing Jesus, but as Jesus is doing great things, as he's making his way toward the cross, the gospel writers show us and remind us that the disciples, even in the closest of proximity that you could imagine to Christ while here on earth, they're struggling by fighting, arguing with one another, yeah, John, I don't know. Uh, I don't think you're going to be the greatest. James chimes in and says, yeah, Peter, you're pretty lame. I don't think you're going to be the one. Andrew pipes in, yeah, actually, I think I'm going to beat it. So all 12 of them think the answer to the question, who is the greatest, is me. I am. And so when you go to Luke 22, starting in verses 24 through 26, we find Jesus, the context here is that he's right on the cusp of crucifixion. He's, he's very near to the cross, so to speak. And here, as Jesus has spent multiple years in ministry, Luke 22 tells us in verse 24 that a dispute also arose among them, the disciples, the twelve, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And so he, Jesus, says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But this is not to be so with you, says Jesus. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and here, notice this language. This is identity language about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The leader as one who, what? serves. So when you go into Luke's gospel, Luke 22, what you need to know is that these verses are a parallel passage to John 13 in that both in John 13, which we're going to look at here in a minute, and in Luke 22, both of these contextually find themselves with the disciples, with Jesus, like right on the edge of being crucified. And so Luke tells us that even when the cross was only a few hours away, the disciples were arguing among themselves about who would be the greatest, clueless. Jesus acknowledges that the world has a certain way of viewing greatness, but ultimately the world's way of greatness is backward. 
Thus, this self-congratulatory, this power jockeying should not be so with you, says Jesus, to those who are following him. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and let the leader be as one who serves. This is what Jesus says. And so what Jesus is doing is he's teaching us that servanthood is an undeniable reality. It's an undeniable reality. As the great theologian Bob Dylan once put it, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. In other words, we are in constant service to something because God has hardwired us to be this way. Like we don't go from I'm not a servant to follower of Jesus, now I am a servant. No, you were serving something before Christ, and if you're a follower of Christ, you are now serving someone, and that is Christ. It's the whole worshiper thing that we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's not like I was worshiping nothing, Jesus saved me, then all of a sudden I became a worshiper. No, we come out of the womb hardwired to be worshipers. We come out of the womb, as we said last week, in a family, Satan's family, and we need to be transferred out of that family into the Jesus family by grace through faith. And in this sense, you come out of the womb as a servant. You are serving something, and that something is typically me, myself, and I. And Jesus is telling us that this idea of the heart wired to be a servant is something that is good, but it comes out bent because we come out of the womb dead in sin. So while we were created to serve God, sin has disordered this hardwiring. We just need to grasp that fact. While we were created to serve God, sin has disordered this hardwiring. hardwiring. And apart from God's liberating love, apart from His saving grace, His mercy shown to us, we are destined to make our lives in service about ourselves. This is why sinners require a fundamental transformation of our self-serving nature. This is why we need God to act toward us. This is why we need him to save us. This is why we need to be made a new creation. This is why we must be born again if our hardwiring service is going to give glory to God and not rob glory from God. We are selfish apart from Christ, independent apart from Christ, arrogant self-seekers with cold, hard hearts. But what Jesus demands from us as followers of Christ and what he demands of the world is to live as selfless, trusting, humble servants, resting, trusting in him. And the only way this will be possible for us to serve like we were designed to serve is if who I am is fundamentally changed. And this is why we need point number two, the servant savior. That's what we see in John 13, starting in verse one. We see the servant savior. And what John gives us a picture of is the servant Savior who stoops to save self-serving sinners. We see a picture of a Savior who transforms us from his heart of love. 
In Mark 9, Jesus taught the disciples that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus modeled this behavior in his everyday life. He also used this very language to describe the purpose of why he came as the servant Savior. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So right here, you see in Mark 10, 45, that Jesus is stitching this idea together that the gospel of the cross, the good news of the cross, it is service. He is serving sinners by going to the cross to lay his life down so that he might stand in the place as the wrath-absorbing substitute for sinners. This is the Son of Man serving humanity who must be transformed, who must be saved. And so he's giving us a little peek that the cross is an act of service for those who are sinners. John 13, Jesus drives this very truth home. Here is Jesus, and he's stooping low to serve those whom he loved to the end. I love that verse, verse 1. Having loved his own who are in the world, John tells us that Jesus loved them to the end. And so here he is in John's gospel, right on the cusp, right on the edge, hours away of going to the cross to bear the wrath of God against sin. And here is Jesus stooping low, getting down, taking the servant's towel, tying it around his waist, undoing the sandals of the disciples, and taking on the task of a servant. This is the king. The king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. John 13 is old hat for many of us, and right now it's just easy to be like, yeah, 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 the towel, water, basin, foot stuff, right? But this is the one, according to Colossians 1, like sustaining the whole world, all things were created through him, by him, for him. He's the one holding firstborn from the dead, the image of the living God, stooping, low, humble, serving. King, Lord, Savior, Redeemer, Sustainer, Savior, Shepherd, Friend, Serving, Serving. You see, in verses 1 through 3, we find that Jesus is the servant Savior whose heart is a heart of love. He is genuinely showing and displaying love for his friends. Here in the twilight hours before the cross, Jesus turns to foot washing in order to demonstrate his deep love for his own. In Jesus' day, you guys know the deal, foot washing was a task that was low, it was menial, feet were crusty, stinky, smelly, dirty. Some Jews taught that even Jewish, Jewish servants should never be allowed to do this task because it's so degrading, so low, so menial. And if like anybody should not be doing it, the implication is that Jesus should be light years away from doing this, this task. 
This is why it's mind-boggling to see Jesus. Jesus, who knew that the Father had given all things into His hands. Jesus, who knew that He had come from God and was going back to God to stoop in love to wash the filthy dirt cake feet of the disciples. In this moment, Jesus is radically displaying God's love by becoming a servant. But also notice in verses 4 through 11 that Jesus is the servant Savior who stoops to save. So he's stooping low in his servanthood, and he's doing so because he loves these men in front of him. And he's doing so because he must save. They need to be saved. So when you come into verse 4, when John begins to unpack this episode in the life of Jesus, when Jesus, you read in verse 4, laid aside his outer garments, when he takes that towel, when he ties it around his waist, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet, what is Jesus doing in that moment? Is it like Jesus has like a really low filth tolerance and like the stinky feet smell is overwhelming him and he's like, y'all, like shower time. We got to correct this. We're about to be eating some food. Food and stinky feet don't mix. No one did it. I need to do it. And that's it? It's like, is that all that's going on? Or is there something else that Jesus is teaching in his demonstration of foot washing? And I think that's where we need to land. As Jesus, outer garment off, towel around his waist, as he begins to wash the disciples' feet, hear this, Jesus is performing an acted parable that is blending together two truths concerning the cross. So when Jesus is doing this, and the language he begins to use with this interaction with Peter of like, I must wash your feet, and he's like, you'll never wash my feet, and he's like, if I don't wash you, you can have no part, in front, no part with me, and, he, and Peter's like, okay, if it's feet, am I in the head? Hands, everything, do, do the whole thing. And Jesus is like, no, I know you don't understand this now, but what Jesus is doing is he's blending things. What is a parable? Jesus taught in parables all the time. A parable is a story with a spiritual point. That's like a really easy definition for what a parable is. And so now instead of Jesus just sort of sitting around the table and saying, let me tell you a story about a man who did some foot washing, I want you to see that there's a spiritual point to this story, Jesus himself is acting out the story, so to speak. And what he's doing is right at the foot of the cross, in the deepest part of the shadow of the cross, he stoops low to act out truths concerning the cross. That as he goes to the cross, what you need to know, disciples, then and now, is that the cross cleanses from sin. Just as I'm cleansing your feet, you need to know the cross cleanses. You need this cleansing. And what you also need to know is that the cross is itself the ultimate in service. I'm going to the cross to serve you. I'm going to the cross to serve you. So you can be cleansed. Just like I'm down cleansing your feet, serving you in this way. You see, the cross is essential to a believer's cleansing, and Jesus is teaching his disciples this very truth when he says to Peter in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In the moment Peter doesn't get this, you see the way Peter is struggling with this in verses 6 and verses 7, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, and what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward, you're, you're going to understand this. 
Soon Peter's going to understand that he can have nothing to do with Jesus unless Jesus washes his sins away. I have to go to the cross. I'm serving you in this way. Peter cannot serve his master until Peter has first been served by his master on the cross. Peter doesn't see that yet, but he's going to see it soon. You see, Jesus had to become a servant for the disciples and for us to be able to have eternal life, to find the cleansing of sin that we need. If he had not taken on the form of a servant, if Jesus had not humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, selflessly stooping to offer his life in our place, then we would have no hope of salvation and we would have no ability to be able to follow him. Jesus is serving us at the cross. That's the way it is for everyday disciples. Listen, until we have first been served by the Savior who stooped to save us from our sin, we cannot serve Jesus and others as we were designed. Am I saying that non-Christians cannot and never serve others? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we cannot serve Jesus and others as we were designed. Your service is not for service sake. Servanthood is not just for servanthood's sake. Servanthood in the model and example of Jesus has gospel implications. So in your home, in your church family, in your neighborhood, in the workplace, when you go out into the next six days and 22 hours, the everydayness of your discipleship walks right out of the door with you. And one of the ways you can declare the excellencies of him who saved us is by serving others like you've been served in Christ. So that when people look at you and see how you are living selflessly, sacrificially, giving of yourself to others, there's something about the aroma of your servanthood that is attractive and they're like what's gives what's that about like yeah he serves she serves you serve but your servanthood just smells a little different it has the aroma of christ to it that's the point of our servanthood So thankfully, when Jesus humbly sacrificed his life on the cross in our place, when Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, and he did so giving us the gift of faith so that we would repent and believe in him, guess what? Jesus changes our nature. He gave us a new heart, and now what was once impossible, a life of humble Christ-like service, is not only possible, but it is wonderful. It's wonderful. If you cast your eyes down to verse 17 in your Bible, do you guys see down there? If you know these things, what? Come on, I'm asking a non-rhetorical question. What's the next word? Blessed. Blessed are you if you do them. It's wonderful (laughs) to walk in obedience and follow Jesus' example. Jesus himself is blessing, finds itself And not just knowing that I'm called to be a servant, but to what? Go and do what he's called us to do, leaning in his power, genuine blessing, good blessing. Blessing that I think Jesus is inviting us to. Like, do you want blessing? Like, I don't want cursing in my life. Anyone want cursing in their life? And nobody. Anyone want blessing? 
Yeah. Now, this isn't like name it, claim it. This isn't some like weirdo doctrine. This is just taking Jesus at face value. He says, listen, you can know blessing, divine blessing, good blessing, when you take my words seriously, understand them, and then walk in obedience to them. It's not too much later in John 14, I think, Jesus says, here's how you can know those who love me. It's those who obey my commandments. Blessing is found in this place. It is wonderful when we lean into our gospel-shaped identity. And it's here from this place of sin-cleansed transformation. Notice as we continue in John 13 that Jesus extends the invitation to serve and be blessed. So we see the servant Savior in verses 1 through 11. Point number three, we see this language on Jesus' lips. So I'm modeling something for you. It's an example. I want you to go do it. I want you to go and serve just as I have served you, modeling this for you. Know this. This is where blessing is found. So look at what Jesus says starting in verse, verse 12. I don't say this as much as I probably should, but like when I give these points throughout the sermon, notice that I basically every time go to the verses I'm saying these points are coming out of. Does this make sense? My encouragement is, don't just take my word for it. My encouragement is, open your Bible. Like, bring your Bible to church on Sunday. Like, this is a good thing. Open up your Bible in church on Sunday. This is a good thing. Follow along and see if what I'm saying are actually in the Scriptures. So look there in verse 12. Serve and be blessed. When, says John, he, Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, the disciples, do you understand what, I have, what I've done to you? And I think tone is really big here. I don't think he was like, do you clowns, you giant chuckleheads, like veins popping out of his neck, red forehead. Oh, do you understand? I don't, I don't think he's doing that. There's compassion permeating through Christ. Guys, do you understand what I just did for you? I modeled something for you. That is about to be true on the cross. You call me teacher and Lord. You're right. For so I am. I am teacher. I am Lord. If I then, says Jesus, John 13, if I then, your Lord, your teacher, have washed your feet, here's what you are to get from this. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So in a nutshell, Jesus is asking this question. Do you guys get it? Like, do you guys get what's going on? Compassionate invitation to lean in and see that this wasn't just like Jesus, low filth tolerance, doesn't like the smell of stinky feet. He's like, there's something that was being said here. And what Jesus wants them to see is this, is that in his kingdom, the king is a servant. The king is the servant. The high king of heaven. The Lord of glory. 
the one who will be the epicenter of the infinite amount of affinities in worship for all of heaven, for all of eternity. There's never going to be a day where like infinity plus one comes and we're like, yeah, this heaven thing's a little boring, isn't it? Like it's not going to happen. An infinite amount of infinities will come and go and what will still be sung in the throne room of heaven is holy, holy, holy and the high, holy, holy, holy king of heaven is a servant. He's a servant. And as teacher and Lord, we will never be greater than he is. So Jesus is saying, brothers, listen, pay attention here. If I just took on the task that a servant would feel undignified in carrying out, then what disciple of Jesus has the right to ever refuse serving? The king is a servant, and you're not greater than the king. If I am master, teacher, Lord, and you're not higher than me, master, teacher, Lord. And if I'm going to give myself to servant, what makes you think that you're higher than me? And you're like, yeah, the servant thing, I'm just not down with that. We have no standing to say that I'm too good to do that. No one is above serving as Jesus just demonstrated. I guess you could say like if anyone had the right to be like, yeah, like I actually should be served. <laughs> I am the high king of heaven after all. But he didn't. Mark 10, 45, he came not to be served, but to serve. So no one is above serving as Jesus just demonstrated. And notice this, no one is below being served. You guys know the deal. Who was the one out of the 12 that was sitting there at the table who was on the receiving end of the service of Jesus that night? Who was it? Judas. Judas. Wasn't Jesus like, I'm going to give myself to you, Levin, but this clown over here is about to do some knucklehead stuff, and I am not going to serve him. Doesn't happen. So what Jesus is teaching and demonstrating is that in his glorious kingdom, the way down is the way up, that the way to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, the contrite spirits, the rejoicing spirit, the repenting soul is the victorious soul. To have nothing is to possess all. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. It's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of our king. And it's in this paradoxical, spirit-empowered servanthood we find blessing for blessed are you if you know these things and then do them. So notice that serving others is not a recipe for earning God's approval. So I don't think Jesus, Jesus isn't teaching here, like, do you want blessing? You can manipulate me to give you some blessing if you just go and do these things, right? Like we're in a contractual kind of relationship. That's, that's not what Jesus is doing. This is just Jesus giving a promise, and this is an invitation that promises reward. Like I'm just telling you, in my kingdom, if you're an adoptee into my family, this makes you a citizen in my kingdom, and you just need to know the king is very happy to bless those who take me at my word and live doing what I've modeled for you. So by serving others, as we have first been served by our Savior, we discover this soul-satisfying, blessed way to live. Remember, every day disciple has been created, saved, called to serve, and their service is a testimony to the greatness of the gospel. Some of us struggle with how can I go and witness for Jesus? We struggle with this. 
I think Jesus is teaching that a viable form of witness for the everyday disciple is this. Serve others like you've been served by Jesus. Serve others like you've been served by Jesus. Serve others like you have been served by Jesus. I don't know what that looks like. We make it too hard sometimes. Serving others like you've been served by Jesus is just simply asking the question, how can I lay my life down, give of myself in word, action, deed, or thought in particular moments, in particular situations, in particular ways, in particular areas of life so that Jesus can be seen in that moment? If you want to put it another way, like we talked about, using our gospel-shaped identities, it just simply comes down to this. An everyday disciple is a true worshiper who has been adopted into the family, Jesus' family, and called to serve one another. So let's get down to brass tacks here. What kind of servant am I? Let's ask this question. What kind of servant am I? I've tried to establish from the Scriptures that Jesus has called us to serve. There's the bullseye, gospel-shaped identity bullseye. So let's ask the question, what kind of servant am I? You can find yourself in one of at least three places, I think. You can say this, I am a self-servant. I'm a self-servant. Working only for your own interests. That's a good definition for what a self-servant is. Someone who just works only for their own interests. So the problem here with being a self-servant is that you weren't made to serve yourself. And when you give yourself over to being a self-servant, you only find more misery, the very thing that you're trying to avoid when you believe the lie that self-serving will somehow make you feel less miserable and empty. Isn't it like a wicked cul-de-sac? Like in the brokenness of sin, we're like, this is miserable. And like, I don't want to be miserable. And so the world, the flesh, the devil comes along and says, here is a surefire avenue out of the hole of misery serve yourself. And we're like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to give myself over to serving myself. I'm going to serve myself out of misery. And we give ourselves to serving ourselves, finding that we only actually get deeper into the emptiness and the misery that we're trying to get out of. Why? Because the brokenness of sin cannot fix the brokenness of sin. That's why we need Jesus to come along and stoop low and go, what? Jerk us out of the hole of sin and misery and death and no life and transform us onto the firm ground of himself and then say, now go and serve. So some of us might be here this morning and we're like, dude, like I, I am all about me, myself, and I. I'm a self-servant. Or some of us might be like, yeah, not so much. And so maybe you find yourself as a selective servant. That could be another category, a selective servant. Meaning what? Meaning this, that you're serving only when it's convenient. So you might be hearing Jonathan talk, and you're like, Pastor Jonathan, I get it. I don't want to be a self-servant by God's grace. Like, I don't think like I'm just all about me, myself, and I. I understand what it means to follow Jesus in this way, but I'm selective in my servanthood. I'm serving others only when it's convenient. So serving like this, a selective servant's willingness to serve others is really just a facade for self-service, isn't it? It's like, yeah, I'm going to serve others, yeah, basically when it's just good for me, myself, and I. And so we're just sort of whitewashing, putting lipstick on the pig of self-service and trying to say, like, look how much better it is, but it's really just an excuse for self-service. 
because the selective servant, it's, it's not that you are opposed to serving others, but it's service fueled by this mindset, what's in it for me? And so you do the quick mental math. Yeah, I think this could be good for me. You're like, man, this is going to pull way too much out of me. I don't want to give myself, give of myself in this way. So you do some quick mental gymnastics, and then you just do equal sign. You're like, yeah, not going to serve here, not going to serve here, not going to serve here, not going to serve here. It's service on your time, service on your schedule, service on your location, service on your priorities, especially if there's an opportunity to be able to humble, humble brag about your service, right? Go online, social media, look how I went and served others. Like, I'm all about that kind of service, some of us might find. So the selective servant, right, might fly across the world to feed children in a ghetto on the other side of the earth, but you balk at the consistent month-in, month-out sacrifices of just serving in, like, a Jesus family. Like, I'm not talking about just Sunday morning. Like, I'm talking 24-7 Jesus family. If you look on Slack, you just get a little microscopic snapshot of just people who need help. Help in prayer, help with meals, help with service, help with moving, help with mowing, help with counsel, help with listening. Hey, man, I'm willing to go across the world, but you want me to be consistent month in, month out, sacrificing in my Jesus family for others? Like, yeah, ain't, ain't nobody got time for that. Or you might dig wells twice a year and you're in an impoverished country, right? But you wouldn't be caught dead lowing your lawnmower to your neighbor to save your life. It's like sometimes Jesus' servanthood looks like here's a can of gas to help you mow your yard. You need a tool? You need help moving some furniture? So again, don't, don't make it too complicated. Or perhaps you're like, praise be to God that you find yourself in this third category, a servant of all. Not perfect, but you find this is the genuine heart attitude that you have, where you're ready to meet needs whenever and wherever they arise. Again, it's not perfect. None of us are perfect in this way, but like you do see genuine growth in this way as an everyday disciple who've been given everything we need in Christ. The servant of all attitude is this. Man, I've been liberated by Jesus to give myself to recognition-free servanthood in the church, at work, home, family. It's recognizing that we've all received grace gifts from the Holy Spirit, and it's more than a coincidence that Peter would eventually write, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. A lot of us want to take the gifts from the Holy Spirit and be like, well, thank you, Holy Spirit, and turn it in on self. And remember, again, this isn't just in the church. Our gospel-shaped servant identity begins to mature and thrive when we see everyday life as opportunities to serve others as we've been served by Jesus. So the question, what kind of servant am I? What kind of servant am I? It's a great question to ask. In about 60 seconds, we're going to go into a time of response. Maybe a lot of us just need to sit and soak on that question and just be quiet and listen to the Holy Spirit speak. Then as God the Father reveals where you're at, self-servant, selective servant, servant of all, just know this, that it is possible to change. It is possible to mature into a Christ-like servant. Does Jesus have the power 
to change you? Does Jesus have the power to change you? Yes. The proof of it is that the servant Savior who went to the cross did not stay in the grave. If by the power of God, Ephesians 1, the servant Savior broke the bonds of death and walked out of that grave on the third day, Paul so many times says that is the singular piece of evidence that you need to cling to until the day you die or until Jesus comes back because what it declares is that by that power a dead man could walk out of a grave and defeat Satan, sin, and death, then he has the power to mature you into a maturing worshiper, into a maturing family member, into a maturing servant. Amen? The resurrection has everyday implications, praise God. And that's just how you stitch this all together before we go out into the next six days and 22 hours leaning on Jesus, relying on the Spirit's power to serve others like our servant Savior has served us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, as we just try to wrestle with these things, it's, it, can be, it can be hard. <laughs> Because maybe by your kindness, Father, you, you are doing what we just talked about. Like you are revealing and like making some things known and like the snapshot of uh, sort of the, uh, the state of um, the union, as it were, as it state of our heart is that, I mean, it's sort of ugly in there. Like more than I care to admit, maybe I'm a, a self-servant or a selective servant. Lord, for my brothers and sisters here this morning who are seeing that side of their heart, would you meet them? Would you care for them and comfort them? Would you drown out the accusations of the enemy right now and remind them that in Christ they find a Savior who's drawn to sinners and sufferers? They have a Savior who desires and cares about seeing his own grow and mature. And then you, Holy Spirit, would you just empower them with resurrection power and begin the slow, incremental process of change. Some of us might just be here this morning and we're like, man, I don't even know about this whole servant kind of stuff. It's just obvious that I'm a self-servant because I've just never looked to Christ to be my servant, my Savior servant. In other words, like I'm not trusting in Jesus for salvation. I've never been served by Jesus in that way. I haven't looked to his act of service on the cross as my only hope of salvation. Jesus, if that's somebody here today, would today be the day of salvation where they repent of their sin and turn to Jesus as their only hope of salvation? Would you lead them during this response time to maybe just pray a prayer like this? Jesus, I'm a sinner and I have never trusted in your saving power. Would you save me? Amen. Lord, wherever we're at, would you lead us to be obedient to however you are calling us to respond? It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray. Amen.